those that do generate 208% more revenue. So I think there is a massive competitive advantage to be had. They can gain better data insights and that's been invaluable to the way we've been able to sell. Welcome to Take the Lead, a podcast series that helps empower senior leaders with LinkedIn's data, insights and information. Every episode, you'll hear industry experts share how they are navigating the ever-changing business and digital landscape. Hello, and thanks for joining me. I'm Grace Kerrison, and I head up sales solutions for LinkedIn across Asia Pacific. Well, it's no secret that 2023 will present continued unique challenges for sellers. As we enter a period of economic uncertainty, The year ahead will bring new ups and downs for business owners and senior leaders. LinkedIn's global chief economist, Karen Kimbrough, has shared with us some of her expectations and trending insights for the year. Let's hear from Karen. So currently in the global environment, it's a really interesting moment because we've seen quite a bit of slowing already in the past year. And we're starting to expect there's probably a little bit more slowing to come. Although the Asia Pacific region has done better and fared better than the rest of other global regions, it's still in for, I think, a very difficult time because rates are still quite high. Inflation is still a challenge and labor markets are competitive and unemployment rates are extremely low. One of the things that we see in our data in particular is that hiring rates have slowed dramatically between 20 and 30 percent in the last year. Now, this kind of erosion in the pace of hiring has happened, you know, gradually, and we think there might be a little more to come, but it speaks to exactly how the, say, softening in the market is occurring. It's not occurring in a brutal, drastic way, but just with employers being much more cautious. Probably the one thing to remember is that with all the slowing that we're seeing between 20 and 30% in the Asia Pacific region, we're still running at a pace of hiring that's about at pre-pandemic levels. Despite the challenges in the global macro environment, we are actually seeing some bright spots. There are sectors that continue to have growth in job postings, and we see a lot of interest in hiring still in a couple of particular industries related to return to office, like administrative and support services, and also in areas like entertainment and accommodation, which kind of harken back to the idea that we're seeing more consumer interest in exploring abroad travel and using customer and consumer services. So there still are quite a few bright spots um, in the region, despite some challenging times ahead. So when we think about like, how do we set up a workplace and a workforce that's agile, responsive and prepared for the future of work? I think the three things to focus on are definitely this idea of taking a skills first approach to talent which means really that we're thinking about how do we source and expand our talent pool to include as many possible different dimensions of workers as we can. And so that means thinking about people who possess these skills as opposed to just thinking about people who possess a particular academic credential or have had experience in the past. And by doing so, we know that we expand the talent pool, sometimes 10x, sometimes 20x, and we also expand it to groups that are traditionally underrepresented. So skills first approach to talent is definitely extremely powerful. 
The other aspect of skills first that's really, really important to remember is that skills are changing. So even though one may not be changing your job, you may still find that a lot of the skills required are changing on you. And the way you get around that and survive it really is to make sure that your workforce is upskilling constantly. The good news is that often the workforce professionals are really excited about the opportunity of being invested in. And if they feel that their employers are investing in their skills, they're more likely to want to stay at the company. And we know for a fact that companies that excel at internal mobility actually retain their staff for twice as long as those that do not. The third element that's incredibly important is flexibility. Now, we have seen over the past few years in the wake of the pandemic that workers really appreciate the opportunity to work remotely, for example, which is one aspect of flexibility. But there are other aspects of flexibility too. So it's not just a question of like where you work or which hours you work, but also how much autonomy you have over the type of work you do. And workers at this stage, from what we can see in our data, are incredibly interested in feeling empowered by the choice. And so to the degree to which employers can give them that choice and infuse elements of flexibility in whatever ways they can, that is another way of like being an essential retention tool. So, of course, right now we're in the middle of a pretty uncertain time. It's uncertain because we don't exactly know where the macro economy will lead us. And we know there's also a really rapid pace of technological change happening. But the, probably the best way that we've seen for companies and leaders to navigate this is to stay agile, to invest in their workforce, and ultimately to remember that many times business cycles can be quite short. Recessions can last 9, 10, 11 months. But buying cycles and relationships with their customers can last much longer than that. As Karen explained, despite the global macro environment challenges, there are bright spots and opportunities for growth. And to find these opportunities, we can utilize data-driven insights. Joining us in today's episode to discuss these opportunities and help identify focus areas for leaders are two incredible guests. First, I'd like to introduce Abby White. Abby is the founder and CEO of Sales Redefined and is one of Australia's most dynamic and in-demand sales thought leaders. Abby's proven track record includes assisting in the delivery of over 500 million in sales across a range of industries and supercharging the profits of hundreds of businesses. And joining Abby is our second guest, Shamik Ghosh. Shamik is the Global Vice President of Hybrid Cloud Business at Hitachi Vantara. He spent more than 20 years in the tech industry in several multinational companies where he has led teams to help organizations transform, scale, grow revenue, and achieve profitability. He has experience in strategy, sales, and business operations, and is currently responsible for driving Hitachi Vantara's global cloud sales and helps a team of specialists and cloud architects to help customers and partners meet their demands for hybrid cloud solutions and SaaS consumption models. Hi, Evie. Hi, Shemek. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. It's amazing to be here. Thank you, Grace. And, and thank you, Evie. Looking forward to the session today. We've just heard Karen, our LinkedIn chief economist, talk about the macro environment and what she's seeing are bright spots in Asia Pacific. Now, you're both located in Australia. We're all here in Asia Pacific. I'd love to know what you're both seeing at an industry or a market level. Why don't we start with you, Abby? 
I think it's a really interesting market at the moment. I would definitely say people are nervous. We're hearing about redundancies on quite a large scale every day of the week. We're hearing a lot about skill shortages. You know, here in Australia, we've just had interest rate rises yet again. So there's definitely nervousness, but I think it's really interesting what that is presenting as either an opportunity or a challenge for each business. I think the challenge is how do you find the opportunity right now? You have to go a bit like we did in COVID. How do you get creative and how do you find the opportunity in this current scenario? Shamik, what are you seeing? So today when I'm speaking to customers, you know, they certainly see some of the, the macro conditions that Abby just mentioned, but it also means that then customers look internally in terms of understanding their business much, much more effectively. So understanding the cost of doing their business, they're concerned about some of the experiences and performance that the customers get now, because again, we're all used to having a different experience uh, post the pandemic. And they're also looking at how they can provide their solutions and services, but now doing it smarter in some ways. It is a bit of a pause, absolutely. Customers are pausing, they're thinking, and then they're looking at those opportunities and then working out how to lead through that next phase of those opportunities that they're identifying. So with that, how would you say these types of changes are affecting your team's approach? We're traditionally known as an infrastructure company. We provide some of the the fastest infrastructure solutions in the market. So our buyers know who we are. Uh, And over the last several years, They've capitalized on you know alternate solutions, and they haven't seen our company in that light. So what we've been doing now from a seller perspective is to really change the way we sell in the market. The number one key thing, the approach the teams had to take is being prepared better before you engage with the buyer. If you're not preparing and engaging, you can be sure that the buyer already knows and has a predetermined position in their head. And that's a problem for us because it's a challenge in terms of selling effectively into that space because they are already coming in and they're already telling us that we think you do this. So a key area that I actually coach my team on in terms of the approach we take is take an active listening position when you're in front of the the buyer itself. Don't speak, try and listen. If there's a 20-minute call, spend 80% of your time listening and listening to what the customer wants, aiming to be seen as a consultative partner as opposed to someone who's coming in with a predisposed uh, solution. Abby Shamik just uh, shared with us the impact of these changes to their team and how it's almost like retraining from a selling perspective. You engage with a lot of companies, big and small, across the region. What are some of the biggest behavior changes you're seeing when it comes to both buyers and sellers? I completely echo what Shamik has just said. Those sellers who are exceeding quota, not just meeting quota, but knocking it out of the park and exceeding quota, they are researching every single time and they're actually reaching out less and they're not doing cold blind outreach. So I think that's fascinating. And now we've got to almost retrain ourselves and go back to basics of what we learned when we started selling of are we doing that research so that we can have the personalized outreach. I think the other thing for me that's so interesting is how B2B buyers are having a preference for digital. You know, APAC in our region, they're showing two times more preference for digital over traditional sales. And I think that that's really, really, really challenging because as a lot of traditional sellers who, you know, are used to building relationships, 
you've suddenly got to also embrace digital. And for me, I look at it as how do you have the best of both? And I think that that is presenting some challenges in sales teams. We're also seeing quite common conflict where, for example, the increase in e-commerce channels and all of a sudden, even in enterprise scenarios where you would have said, there's no way you can do that in a seller-free capacity. You can do that in an e-commerce perspective. It's happening and buyers are showing preference for that, particularly as more millennials are coming up into senior decision-making roles. I think the latest research I saw was 54% of millennials are preferring the seller-free experience. Now, I don't think that means that there's the end of the sales profession. We don't all need to go and change careers. But what I do think is we need to actually embrace it. And also as leadership teams, we need to make sure that some of those digital channels and e-commerce channels aren't a threat. So do I still get paid if they go through an e-commerce procurement channel? Do I still get compensated? Is that still part of my KPI? And that's what I think is also fascinating from how internally we're seeing businesses respond to those buyer changes, where we're seeing that head of sales, chief sales officer, they're now responsible for all sales channels, not just sales people. And so I think there's some really, really fascinating changes. For me, it's also about the adaptive seller. Can I also adapt and embrace some of the new ways of selling that actually we're seeing work so successfully for high-performance salespeople? And that's what I'm certainly looking for with sellers that we engage with. Let's switch around sales and marketing alignment. I know, Shanik, you've done a lot of go-to-market strategy, it seems like, in Hitachi Ventara that is currently one of the transformations that you know that you're seeing abby you are known for being the marriage counselor for sales and marketing so can you both tell us a little bit more about how you're working within your teams or with other companies on getting sales and marketing alignment which has been the goal for many organizations for a long time why don't we start with you abby and we'll go to shamik For us, it's really interesting. We will get a brief perhaps from a marketing department saying, you know, we really want to target this industry vertical and this is what we want to do and we're really excited about it. And we'll say, that's fantastic. Can we also talk to sales? We want to speak to both sides of the fence. And we'll go and speak to sales and say, where are you winning? And what questions are you being asked right now? And and we'll ask them questions and we get a completely different brief. And typically when we say, well, what about the industry vertical that we've just mentioned? And they go, oh no, we're not winning there. We don't even get paid on it. We're not on the panel. You know, there's a total and utter disconnect. And so, you know, for us, if we're not on the same page and we're running in different directions, then we're never going to get an ROI on any sales and marketing campaign or efforts or demand generation that we might be doing. So I think we have to start by getting on the same page. And I think particularly where we've just talked to the fact that, you know, so much of the market, there's demand to play in a digital manner. And so I think if you look at digital, you have to go, well, whose responsibility is that? Is that sales or marketing? And what we're seeing is it's a really blurry line. So we now are calling it smarketing and saying, you know, you cannot think sales or marketing. You have to think smarketing because otherwise what we see happen is, you know, marketing might create a campaign, but 70% of what they create never gets used by sales or marketing generates some awesome leads, but 50% of leads never get followed up on 
and never see the light of day. And so it almost kills me because it's almost throwing money down the drain. And I think right now, you know, we're talking about a more challenging economy where we all have to do more with less in that situation. So we can't afford to have this leaky funnel. I also think it's a massive competitive advantage. You know, we know that only 8% of companies have a strong alignment between their sales and marketing. And those that do generate 208% more revenue. So I think there is a massive competitive advantage to be had if you can get your sales and marketing together. And it's actually so simple because we start day one with companies by get sales and marketing in the same room. And for many of them, that's actually a first. And with both of them, brainstorming and workshopping, where are you winning? What are you seeing? What questions are you being asked? What challenges are people raising? And knowledge sharing so that we can then define together, okay, where are we running? Which direction are we going in? Who are we talking to? And creating that alignment. Thanks, Abby. As a matter of fact, we released a research called Tech for Savvy Marketers a couple of years ago. And we found that there's only an average of 23% overlap between the target audiences that marketing and sales teams go after. So there's a huge opportunity to really bridge that gap, especially in the current environment where every revenue organization is looking for business growth. Shamik, having heard Abby and having heard the data points that I've shared, is there anything that you'd like to add recognizing you are responsible for the go-to-market strategy at Hitachi Ventara? Over the last 12, 18 months, actually, we as an organization, as a company, have, have looked to bring marketing much closer to sales. We've started to involve them earlier in our go-to-market strategy formulation. We're using them for customer and competitive insights. And we're also using them for market sizing, customer targeting, and messaging. You know, these things are kind of traditional, but the key thing here is get them involved early, get them understanding the challenge early so that when you're going through the process of planning this out and formulating the strategy, they're right there and they're, they're a partner as opposed to a another unit that's not providing useful information. And what we've even done is of recent is, is sales has championed. And when I say champion, often this comes to funding. Sales has funded specific activities around market studies and those studies are then fed back into the loop for strategy formulation again. So this really allows marketing to feel part of the process, part of the process of of actually determining where the company is going. And then what ends up happening is we've actually gone even one step further and involved them now in our sales play formulation. So what do the sales plays look like? They're involved in our campaigns, they're involved in our sales enablement plans as well. These areas that we specifically address and targeted with the marketing teams is leading to, I guess, better results now. We're starting to see the execution that's happening in the field from a field marketing perspective is getting closer aligned to what sales is wanting. So the, the qualified leads that are coming in, sales are already aware because sales are participating in generating some of those leads. So that's something that we've learned as an organization and I've learned through as well. And, and I think it's a, it's a great uh, area for us to share. It goes back to leadership, alignment, and actually having, a, I guess, a common goal in terms of what we're trying to achieve between sales and marketing. So, Shamik, a question for you then is, if you were to look at how sales has been done currently or even in the past, what do you view are the new sales or up-and-coming sales habits of high performers that every leader or sales professional should really be embracing? 
So in my opinion, there's two aspects of this. We spoke a little bit about being prepared. What we often find is high performers are, are extremely intelligent sellers. So they're keen to tell the buyer everything they know about that that buyer. So they will go into a meeting and they will spend most of the time talking because they've done all this great research. So I think a habit that what we find high performers do is they'll know that they will keep that in their back pocket up until the very last minute. And I sort of talked about that active listening. So if you can marry the two where you've got that great insight that you've now driven from tools uh, such as LinkedIn Sales Navigator, people are out there looking at it, or there's other industry tools as well that are available. When you're out there and, and speaking to the buyer or the customer, make sure that you're not going in and pitching a solution immediately. Make sure you're listening. And what we find is those high performers, and we've done plenty of data analysis around engagement. So we have this uh, tracker around productivity of sellers. And what we find is those sellers that are spending a lot of their time getting prepared, and then they're in front of the buyers, and they're not pitching a solution without understanding what the buyer really wants, could be a business problem that they're trying to solve, they're more productive. There's better engagement. There's more activity that's happening. So that's actually key for us to kind of make sure that those high performers stay engaged because if they're in front of buyers and they're saying everything, what we find is then we're not addressing the problem. Thank you, Shamik. Your last point there reminded me of my first conversation with Abby. So Abby, I'm going to put you on the spot because I've taken your statement around making sure you have a second date. Every event, every meeting, you need to make sure you have a second date. So I'd like you to touch on that, but also the point of view around we know that the buying cycle is longer. It's at minimum 12 months. But part of that then is there are more people engaged in that buying. It's now a buying committee. It went from six to now 13. So Abby, can you share your point of view around that second date and also the importance of multi-threading? So statistically speaking, 90% of sales stall because the sales professional did not ask for the next step. So finishing a meeting with no clear next step, you know, doing a presentation and there's no real next step, doing a webinar and just saying, thanks for coming, having a PDF, download ebook, and at the end, that's it. So for me, I look at it as you can transform your sales if every single thing you do has a second date. So at the end of your email, what action do you want me to take? What is the next step? At the end of your ebook, how do I set up a call with you to discuss that? At the end of your webinar, cool, what can I do? And so where we see the incredible results is by always continuing that conversation. I think too many people are trying to get married on the first date. And now you need those multiple touch points because most people are not ready to buy. Only 3% of your target market are ready to buy. So we have to do that. In terms of your question around high performance sellers and habits, for me, I'm really passionate about discipline. I think that for most sales professionals, we know what we need to do, but we don't do it. The biggest challenge with sales teams is how do we get our sales teams to do what they know they should do? And I find it fascinating because we've worked with small businesses to really large corporates, and we can talk about a hundred different things over a couple of days. And at the end, we'll do a wrap up and go, right, what were some of your key takeaways that you're going to implement? And everyone goes, we're going to do follow up better. 
And it's the basics. It's common sense isn't common practice. And so I actually think some of it is going back to having the discipline to do what we know we should do and implementing it well, not just sometimes researching or sometimes following up or sometimes doing that habit. It's doing it all the time. Yeah, absolutely, uh, Abby. And that's one of the things that we also find is the ability to repeat that discipline is actually quite important for the sellers. And we certainly get distracted by many things today and, and most sellers will have more than one customer, but that seller has been engaging for 12 months. How do you stay disciplined over that 12-month period when the sales cycles are getting longer? That becomes really challenging for many, many sellers because today, you know, we're used to having the next thing that we jump to. We're used to having the problem that we want to solve next, the, the next thing that the next customer that wants to talk to us. So, so it's really important. And, and I really do like the fact that you raised this point around discipline because it's something that, that we often talk about in our sales leadership calls is to stay disciplined to the approach, even if that means that you will do the next step, follow up in two weeks or three weeks. It doesn't have to be tomorrow because the customer may need time to understand what are the things that are important to their business based on the discussion that you've had. So this is something I think is, is really critical as well as we lead more effective selling. The notion of discipline and creating habit, because you're both right, discipline takes habit and sometimes common sense isn't, isn't common practice. But the reality is technology is there to augment human capability. Shimmy, you gave the example of, you know, in a long sales cycle, Usually a sales rep has more than one customer. And so how do you multitask? How do you make sure that you have the right relationships, the right you know, account intelligence, and the right time when you're actually reaching out when the buyer is actually ready to engage with you? My last question to both of you is, how do you view data and insights to find sales opportunities or bright spots, recognizing that it's not really a recession, but rather a reshuffle? Certain industries are going well and certain industries are not, but you need data and insights to be able to uh, act upon, you know, the next best action for you as a seller. I'll start with you, Shamik. If you think about the uses of data, we often use data to look in the rear view mirror, retrospectively analyze performance or market trends or where we're going. But the right data insights is actually extremely valuable for sales. And what we've seen is, if sellers use the right tools, we certainly have made available a lot of tools to our sellers, such as LinkedIn Sales Navigator. It comes back to being better prepared. They can gain better data insights, and that's been invaluable to the way we've been able to sell to the new buying centers that we're going after. About 12 or 18 months ago, we actually built an in-house assisted AI ML data model where we inputted several variables into this model which allowed us to actually understand the customer's propensity to buy a service or a solution. And this is really interesting for us because what it allows us to do now is effectively use that data model as a single source of truth. We have multiple variables that we fed in. And what it allows us to do is it allows us to then go to the sellers, our sellers, and arm them with that information to say, this potential customer who you may not have spoken to for six months is actually looking at a different solution. So this sort of model that we built has been critical to actually now using it as a single source of truth for marketing campaigns. So when we are sending out EDMs, they're actually going to those identified as high propensity to buy or at risk 
of leaving uh, the company itself. And what we've done is we've now built a feedback loop into that where we're able to then feed that back into the model and just enrich it. So continuous process of enriching the model. And we're also enriching it with other sources, other third-party sources. And what this has allowed us to do is, so rather than being in the rear view mirror and looking at performance and trying to understand where the market's going, we're using data real time to make decisions on a campaign, on an execution activity that we're running in the field every day. Thank you, Shamik. Abby? I think it's really interesting to see, I would say it's a slow transition um, of going from what is now viewed as sort of more traditional sales, which is my intuition-based selling, to now data-driven selling. And I would say that one's definitely going to be a journey. I'm probably not seeing it picking up as much speed as people would probably like. And I think that comes back to it's a behavioral change for some of the sellers. Nobody has a shortage of data. People need to be able to do something sensible with that data, but also then we have to get the sellers having the right habits, as we've talked to, to leverage and use the data. Have you checked those insights, the CRM, LinkedIn, whatever source it might be, before you go and have that conversation? And I think we have to, because if you look at it now, you know, 75% of customers expect us to have anticipated their demands before they've even reached out to us. You know, predictive selling is going crazy. So we do need to lean on the data because unfortunately, most of us don't have a crystal ball. So we need the data to help us work smarter. But what I'm seeing with the customers we're working with is actually some of this is still ground zero of how do I get my sellers to actually put the data in the CRM? Now, I started my career at IBM in sales operations, and 15 years ago, that was a problem, and 15 years on, it's still a problem, and I've been guilty of it as well. So I think, again, it comes back to that of going, if we can't get some of those basics right, we're not going to have the high-quality data that we need to make the smarter decisions, to have the marketing campaigns with those insights. So where we're seeing it right now in terms of the reality is still getting some of that ground zero foundations right to make sure we've got high quality data and the right habits from the sales team to input and utilize the data. And what I'd like to add to that is, you know, in October, we launched deep sales as a as a category with what we call a, a sales intelligence tool, because how do you present information insights to a seller in which it allows them to know what the next best action is? And for us is it's really around three areas. One is account intelligence, relationship intelligence, and the area around buyer intent. And account intelligence is similar to what you've said on what Hitachi Ventara is is doing through AI and ML, is around how do you focus on the right accounts? Relationship is around also around hidden allies as an example, in which you are looking at previous colleagues, potentially previous alumni of uh, of Hitachi Ventara or other types of pathways that get you into an intro into an account that potentially you might not have the contacts. And then from a predictive engine perspective is how do you know that they're actually interested in the content or the data or other information that you're posting out there? And so for us, it's, you know, where we're taking sales navigator and LinkedIn sales insights. It's really around that predictive engine is a platform that really makes sellers more productive. And the reason why that's important more than ever is, as you both know, we've just gone through the great reshuffle or the great resignation of the last 12 months. Many companies have brought in 
a lot of new people. I mean, Abby, you've been very busy and Shamik, I'm sure you're, you know, you're smiling. It's probably the same thing for Hitachi Ventura. And what we're seeing now is variability in performance because you do have a lot of new people that not are only learning about the company that they're in, but a lot of movements within their territory and within their accounts as well. And so you do need to use data and insights and the right technology tool to be able to expose that to a relationship manager or any seller to be able to understand what is it that they can do as a next step. Yeah, absolutely, Grace. And one of our biggest challenges, and you talked about the great reshuffle, is people are coming on into the company. It's a ramp to productivity. It's what we deal with every day as one of the key things. And how do we get that first sale, the first intro, the first outcome and arming them with these sort of data tools because they're coming in. It could be a new patch because they've had to leave their old patch behind where they have been before. So we find that it's a challenge for us and at least we're attempting to use these tools that you just mentioned, Grace and, and Abby as well, to help our sellers to improve that ramp to productivity. So it's not just about training, but actually how do we help them and arm them, make sure they're disciplined, back to that term, you know, into the using the capability that they've been given and, and then hopefully succeed much quicker uh, for themselves and the company as well. I think a point to add on that as well is make it easy. You know, I know for me, guilty as charged, I was updating my CRM about 11 o'clock last night when all I wanted to do to go was go to bed. And in my head, I'm like, I've got to practice what I preach. I've got to do the CRM. But if it's not easy for people and it's clunky and it's difficult, it's not going to happen. So I think it's also remove the path to resistance. We want sellers out there selling, being productive. We don't want sellers with huge admin time. So I think it's also whether it's about sellers using a CRM or sellers using data or a tool, how do we make it seamless and easy for them? Otherwise, it's just not going to happen. Well, that's all we have time for today. If you've enjoyed today's conversation and want to know when we release new episodes, be sure to hit subscribe. And if you'd like to stay informed with LinkedIn's data, insights, and information affecting senior leaders, follow our LinkedIn Sales Solutions page. We will include links to anything discussed, as well as details about where you can find more information about Abby and Shamik in our show notes. Thanks so much for joining me.